maybe Dan, we can start off with you. Just share a little bit about who you are, what you do, and then we'll move over to you, Alan. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to throw the first curveball, and I'm going to introduce my brother because I can, because I got to go first. Uh, Alan Zhang is the consummate professional, as long as he's properly medicated, and he uh, <laughs> he has taught me more about negotiation, particularly sales and procurement negotiations, than anyone else in the world. And he has a lovely wife and six beautiful children spread all across the United States, including a few still in his own home. And he is a co-founder of the Negotiation Tribe and its ecosystem of supported negotiation services. That is a very informative introduction of Alan. It was lovely to look at you and hear about Alan. Thank you so much for sharing. Oh, I think he's blushing. Look at that, Rashawn. He's, he's blushing. <laughs> um, I'm surprised. That is so. That is so flattering. Uh, <laughs> I was bracing myself. Well, <laughs> let me tell you a little bit about my stepbrother. He lives in Kansas, um, where the buffaloes roam wild where he rides a horse, I mean, a uh, pickup truck like everyone else. <laughs> and where he and his wonderful wife, Miley, raised six of their wonderful kids. By night, he chased after bad guys as a police crisis negotiator and undercover cop. By day, he and I train, teach, and coach negotiation to profess, uh, professionals and entrepreneurs. And what we do is we help shape their culture and help them build strong agreements internally and externally. See, no dig at you, Dan. No dig. There you go. That was I good, but I did. Pretty straight. Well, Pretty so just to, to make sure that I, I don't break the trend, I'm going to introduce my stepbrother as well. Yeah, it's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody needs a handy stepbrother. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Well, hey, listen, I appreciate the context. You know, I love that you guys are coaching on negotiation. You know, this is a real hot topic. You know, knowing the world that I come from, primarily from a software sales perspective, you know, negotiation is really high in our radar in terms of making sure we're delivering the best value for our customers, but also making sure that there's a long-term winning strategy that's defined and developed and partnerships that are established across multiple organizations that we work with, right? And so I guess my first question to you guys is, is that there's so many different interpretations of what is good or quality negotiation. I'd love to ask you, what is your opinion or what is your view on negotiation? What does it mean to you? Go ahead, Dan. Well, might start with what we don't think it is, which is usually a poor way to define something, but this is such a complex question. Um, we don't think that negotiations, and this is a little ironic because we both come from a background of combatives. Uh, Alan has a deep history with martial arts. Uh, I'm a trained gunfighter. Uh, it's kind of my trade. And in both of those endeavors, there are some similarities to negotiation in that there's discipline in the preparation and you have to have good strategy and tactics and good habits. But we don't see negotiation as combatives. And we, we see it as a more collaborative process. And that leads us to the, the thing, the next thing that it's not is it's, but it's not win-win, which can be uh, startling for other people in our field to hear because it's, it's pretty well established that negotiations are win-win but that's not been our experience as field practitioners. Um, we think that negotiations is more about strong relationships and strong agreements. And it's really based upon a really key thing called consent. And we actually have a definition. I'll let Alan, he's, he's the master at delivering the actual definition. 
<clears throat> well, there's many different ways that people define negotiation. In the simplest way we can look at it is every time I have to make a decision, while I have to influence the decision of my counterparty, <clears throat> we're in a negotiation. But a more formal definition is just the nonviolent form of communication. And there's many different forms, right? We have uh, uh, people using threats or you actually uh, uh, going violent on their counterparty or partners or uh, the adversaries. But it's a nonviolent form of communication that brings about agreement between two or more parties with each party having the power of consent. It's very, I love how you concisely put that statement together. Agreement between two parties that have consent. Can you share with me a little bit about what do you mean by it's not a win-win? So how is that different from a win-win? That's a very good question. <clears throat> First of all, the paradigm of win-win is a completely invalid way to look at negotiation. Tell me more. You're a buyer. I'm a seller. How are we competing? You need my product in order to take your company to the next level or to hit a strategic objective. I want to sell that software or that product so that we can feed our families and my employees or whatever, right? There is no, there is no competing aspect of it. We just have to make sure that our mission and purpose aligns. So what we focus on is mission and purpose alignment, and it is never about winning or losing. Even the word win-win, although it sounds seductive, it's implying that it's competing and one person will lose. So guess what? Even this morning, I was in a, in a, in a, in a group of people talking about negotiation and someone said, negotiation is when two parties walk away from an event slightly unhappy and i'm like how sad is that right how sad to 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 look at negotiation as a way to just live life and never getting what you want for us for dan and i we would rather have no deal than to walk in a deal thinking you're not going to be happy and i'm not going to be happy we just have to accept that and guess what we would just call it win-win and then you know what it sounds great everybody gets a trophy Right? But no, I want to know what it is that you are trying to accomplish. Your mission, your purpose, your long-term long aim. And I'm going to see how I can help you achieve that and do it under terms that are acceptable to me. I used to hear win-win, Rashawn. And I'm like, yeah, I can allow that as a, as a good definition of negotiations or as a, a description of the negotiation process. Because I took it to mean we both accomplish our mission and purpose. And if that's the case, then wonderful. But I've come around on that and largely because of Alan, Alan's experience and my experience where that's not what people mean when they say win-win. They both mean, well, we both get something. And what that usually actually looks like in the real world is compromise and an avoidance of conflict. And uh, oftentimes uh, the people that approach it as win-win, if the other parties actually win-lose, they're probably going to lose. It's going to get bloody. Right. And because if win-win guides your tactics and your strategy, then you're, you're opening yourself. You're becoming vulnerable in a way that's not healthy. 
and it can lead to bad agreements and it does not lead to stronger relationships and partnerships. Kind of like what you mentioned, like that's a, the, an ideal outcome of a sales cycle when it's done properly is you have a strong connection to your vendor as from the buyer side and you have a strong connection to your client from the sales side. And when you win, win, we just seen over and over again, it leads people down really dark paths. That's so again, incredible context, right? And just to make sure I'm following you, is so you're saying you, you I guess you're what you're saying negotiation is, is is outside above and beyond a win-win is getting to a central point where there's consent on both sides but there's a definition of what each other is happy with right Alan is that is that the accurate way of understanding your overall summary we actually don't focus on happy okay like that happiness it's something that is ill-defined yeah it's a it's a it's a it's an emotional state that can, that can change. And that's why sometimes they'll have, you've seen people who have a deal and then later a few months they say, we're not happy with it. Well, what changed? It's the same deal. It's because their, their situation and their conditions have changed. So the previous deal that they struck two months ago is no longer valid. In, in a good negotiation, both parties have to continually look at what's working and what's not and once you start a relationship, negotiation never ends. It never does. So we have to refine it. And sometimes as soon as the contract is signed, people already want to change it. Shouldn't every business that's selling products for, well, regardless of the size of these products and, and businesses that employ people to do buying for large projects and investing in, in large amounts of money have practices in place for these type of negotiation skills and teachings. And uh, I'd love to get your opinion on that in terms of what you think about that and, and why do you coach on negotiation? Why do you think it's important to do that? Dan, you wanna go first or you want me to? Yeah, because it's about habits. It's, it's very much, it's a human performance activity. So, uh, you know, uh, hockey, right? Can you learn hockey from reading a book? Can you learn it from watching a series of YouTube videos? I would say, I would answer no. No, absolutely not. How you learn a perform human performance activity is there is some study involved, but mostly you're, you're learning with other practitioners. You're developing your own style. You need core principles, right? You need to understand the rules of the game, right? You also need to understand when the rules don't apply. You need to have strong ethics. In any human performance activity, you better have a good ethical foundation. But mostly you need to develop good habits. And in hockey, there are a set of habits that you must have, whether that's discipline in skating, passing, stick, you know, uh, puck handling, uh, shooting, or blocking, right? There are core habits, skills, you could say, that have to become second nature because the puck moves so fast. Translate that to negotiation. There are a core set of skills that you need to develop in the habits because the emotions and the, the tactics and the techniques and the biases happen so fast. It's going to become reflexive at some point. And then that means he or she who has strong habits will be able to honor their mission and purpose. Where we see our students fail is when they, even when they have a good mission and purpose, is when they discard their skills because they have not been developed in the habits yet. And they default back to reacting, whatever their natural responses were to that stimuli. And so it's all about habit formation. And there's no substitute for a really good, robust coaching program with good coaches who have a deep experience helping you develop habits. 
I'm going to build on what my stepbrother said and go as like take a step back, right? In terms of process, ideally, a company with its product and the sales team would have processes. Ideally, they have a set of languages. Ideally, they have a system. I've walked, if I walk into a hundred companies, 99% of them do not have systems or processes across the board. So what happened is the sales manager ends up feeling like they're herding cats. These, these are words coming from sales manager. And you know, this is my sales team. It's like herding cats. These are the, like words coming out of their own mouth. The frustration is because they don't have a set principles, processes, and systems that they can rely on, that they can trust, and know that it would, it would deliver consistent uh, uh, results for them. So they let everyone do whatever they want to do, and that's where the frustration comes in. That's where a lot of the conflict within the sales and the technical team or the sales and the management team comes about because each one brings it from, they may hire someone who is a great salesperson from a retail to now sell software or someone who used to sell meat at the marketplace to now sell software and go, well, he did really well. He's a good people person, quotes unquote, right? He's a great people person that therefore maybe he will be able to sell for us. And sometimes they do well, sometimes they don't. When they don't is when there's conflict internally. So ideally, having a process is great. You talk about a process and you talk about the habits, right, which is really critical in a negotiation. It, that skill set, that framework, or those guidelines, however you label it, right, it's important to have that in a negotiation. And one of the things you gentlemen talked to me about prior to us uh, doing this recording is, is that you're representing and you're coaching on both sides. And I would imagine those habits might have some commonalities, but might have to be flexible and, and different on both sides, right? One of the things you mentioned there, Alan, as well, is, is when a lot, of the, a lot of businesses today, they hire top-notch talent, whether it's in sales or whether it's just a buyer, and then they let them go out and, and perform and execute upon these negotiations based on their skill set, based on their resume, based on, on their credentials, right? And, and they lean more towards the trust factor, leveraging the trust factor in the negotiation. So I guess my question to you is, do you feel like trust is important? I know you mentioned habits are critical in the negotiation. Do you feel like trust is important in the negotiation? I'm going to have to qualify this and go. First of all, trust is important. Trust is nice to have, but trust is not necessary. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll explain what, what I mean. If we have trust, yes, we, our conversations will move a little bit faster. Um, suppliers may be able to charge their customers a little bit more, maybe 10, 20, 30% more, but they will not be able to charge 10x, right? They're not going to say, I'm going to charge you 10 times. And because you trust me, um, you should be able to pay that. No one would do that. Seldom anyone would do that. Now, why do I say trust is not necessary? Because we're in the world of negotiation. Sales use negotiation, and this is where it comes in, Rishan. It's sometimes I'm called in when my client is about to lose one of their biggest customer. They have left them, sometimes they've left them to go to a bigger competitor. They've already left. And long story short, we've, we've helped people gain these customers back in a couple of months. This is after the customer no longer wants to communicate with my client. 
Trust is broken. Correct. There is no trust. They don't even want to talk to my client. In some cases, the client is threatening to leave. They're, in their emails, it'll be like, you guys are not delivering X, Y, Z. Your mission and purpose says you will do X, Y, Z. How laughable. Or you have not delivered on time. And I've asked you time and time again, and you still haven't met our deliverables. We are late. Our, our customers are mad. We are beyond disgusted with you. There's no trust. The minute I walk in, there is no trust. Yet, yet, we have to build agreements. We have to negotiate. We have to do business. And we do. There's a lot of sales folks. And, and also, by the way, LinkedIn, the internet, it's an amazing place. We get to interface with a lot of sales trainers. And, and then they're not all the same. Everyone's very unique. Everyone's, everybody's a special butterfly, right? But a very consistent thing we see is that sales folks tell us there's not much difference between negotiation and sales. Uh, many tell us negotiation is what you do when you screw up a sale, trying to get a close. <laughs> and we're like, okay, fair. Like we, we see what you're saying. We totally disagree, but we see what you're saying. It's, it, you're looking at it from a different perspective, right? But what's interesting is that it's very, so what we say and then what actually happens in the dark corners of the sales and procurement rooms is very different because salespeople tell us trust is so critical, building rapport. We're like, great. But then what they do, like you said, when we lose, when we broke trust and we lose a client, what do we do? We just discount. Yeah. How, how does discounting have anything to do with rapport? <laughs> because you give a lower price, they trust you more? No, that's not how it works. Whereas a negotiator, especially somebody from our world, from our system, would be like, get really curious about why they left because maybe it wasn't about price at all. So they would do discovery and you have a wonderful opportunity, by the way, when people leave you and cancel their business with you, they're needy and they're still going to leave you, but they feel bad. So you call them up and say, look, I know you're leaving. I'm not going to try to change your mind. You, I've learned from serving you for three years that you guys make really great decisions. Can you help me make better decisions by giving us some insight to why you left? And then you dive into a discovery about that. And all of a sudden you discover it was hundred percent about price. Now it's not a discount. It's a principal business decision on whether or not you're going to discount your ERP software, right? For them to get them back. Or you find out it has nothing to do with price. It has to do with some other deliverable, or it has something to do with a specific relationship from their team to your team. There was a specific procurement person who hates the guts of a specific salesperson and that has poisoned the well. And that sounds crazy, but it happens every day. And so that's, I think, uh, negotiators default into discovery. And we train really, really, really hard at that because of the basis of consent. It requires you to know the positions and interests of your counterparty very, very well. And I think that's, um, maybe that's one thing we really emphasize, maybe more so than sales. Some salespeople really dive into that aspect. And then I tell them, be careful, because you're really flirting with negotiation now. Let's change that dynamic a little bit there, all right? Because what, what also happens in addition to reacquiring a customer, taking a few steps back prior to actually closing and aligning on a transaction with the customer or, or with, the, with, the, with the buyer is, is sometimes you'll have a framework in place, you'll have a process in place in terms of your gives and your gets, your, your wins, your win-win or your wins and your losers, all right? That's kind of typical. And you find yourself in a position, let's just say you're the seller, for example, in the same, same scenario we talked about, but taking it a few steps back in terms of the sales stage, you find yourself in a position where you've put your best foot forward in terms of positioning your value, but you have a customer that's giving you an ultimatum. 
you have a buyer that's giving you an ultimatum. And so sometimes, well, I guess more often than not, emotion can supersede those processes and those frameworks and those methodologies of the gives and the gets, the win-wins, the wins and the losers. And so emotion can take over and you're like, you know what, as a seller, if I don't go to the maximum discount, if I don't go to the floor with this deal, it's done. There's no other way. And I'd love to get your opinion on how to overcome that natural behavior that regularly occurs. This is, uh, this is funny because uh, my, one of my mentors, Jim Camp, wrote a book called Start With No. Okay. A lot of people misunderstand the, the title and they read the title and they think they know the whole book. Oh, it's about me telling other people no. Well, it's not. It's, it's about it, us asking for no. Um, if you ask for a no or you invite a no, it does a, a myriad of things. And one of the many things, it, it lowers the barrier of trust. And it also allows the other person to make their own concessions without you even asking for it. Okay, so it goes like this. Well, what you said is the ultimatum is a threat. So it, there's a lot of dynamics. I can talk about a few hours about this. <laughs> the other party uses ultimatum on you you feel pressure to make a deal, you go to the lowest floor. Next time you have another uh, customer who wants to pay you premium, who are you gonna want to serve? The premium. Correct, in a, in a crisis, and I have to deal with many Asian countries. Last year in January and February, when, when supply chain was shut down and they couldn't find the product that they want, who do you think the supplier will service the one who gave them who took care of them or the one who squeezed every single penny out of them who had products to sell just think about that for a minute you can threaten people for a short period of time dan and i are not interested in in short-term deals we help people build long-term agreements that doesn't fall apart easily okay so ultimatum are threats and they work for a short period of time. The problem again is if you compromise and go to the floor, the person who did the threat now feels like you were about to gouge me until I threatened you. Do I trust you? Because you were talking about trust earlier. So if you want to build trust and you compromise on your price and you go down to your, your floor, are you building trust or are you telling the other party, you know what? I just gave you a, a BS price earlier. But so next time, please threaten me and I'll go to the floor for you. Humans are adaptive. 100%. Yeah. Now think about so that. What's, so what's interesting is it's a spectrum too, Rashawn. I mean, you've brought up ultimatums. There's threatening to walk away. There's making stuff personal. There's creating phantom competitors with phantom proposals to drive your, to your price down. There's, there's this whole spectrum of deception and aggressive tactics. And it's very common to, you have to, so we don't teach it to deploy it, but we have to teach it so that you know how to manage it when it happens to you. And what's interesting is with Alan's deep experience in the business side, I'm no stranger to threats. I've had people try to kill me. So that's why I think our coaching programs are very successful is because we can talk about the human dynamic of when they, when they make an ultimatum, stay in their world. What's that mean? What neediness and pressures are they under that they have to deploy that tactic? And let's do some discovery about that before we have to answer. 
there's a reason why they're talking to us. So let's find out why they've chosen to talk this way because we have consent still. You know, Alan, you gave me the chills there when you talked a little bit about the, the reduction in your credibility versus all, based on the, the, the bullshit price versus the floor price, right? And, uh, and it's so interesting how that can happen, right? How that reaction to an ultimatum can really reduce your credibility. And I love how you talked about, well, we're getting into a situation not to just be threatened by an ultimatum or not just to create a, a setting uh, where we're not serving the premium customers or we're creating a habit of serving premium customers, right? It's playing that infinite game, right? It's just playing that long game. It's playing that long-term partnership game. And I'd love to just double click for a second on when you talked about the starting with the no. What do you specifically mean by that? Is that, is that a way of starting a negotiation conversation by giving and providing every reason why it shouldn't happen? Or no. is it refusing to deliver on everything that's being asked for or something else? Very, very good question. The, the, the theory and the principle and, 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 the, and the tactic is this, is to help the other person feel safe to share information with us. Because without that information, we are really negotiating against ourselves. We're making assumptions based on fear. We think that the ultimatum is real. So we'll have to invite the no. So it'll be something like this. So Rishan, I, I hear that you need us to, to lower our price and, and $100 for this, this pen isn't gonna work. Does that mean that if I cannot lower my price that there is no deal here? Are you rejecting our proposal? Or are you officially saying no to this deal? The minute you say, well, no, that's not really what I mean. Then I know that the person who just right there compromised is not us. It's the other party making the ultimatum. You see that? What was the biggest, the biggest challenge with that is, is many people, and I think you both of you obviously have seen this way more than me. Many people have a problem with saying, hey, Alan, hey, Dan, are you telling me no? Fear, fear. Look, look, we can talk about this all day long, Rashawn, but you know why Dan is so critical? And I, I couldn't develop the program that Dan and I are developing without Dan because of this. Because intellectually, you can know all this stuff, but without the ability to train and to be coached into the habits of handling adrenaline dump when someone is threatening you, to lower your voice, slow it down, be calm, and be curious and calm, and not even let your voice shake. In order to do that, you have to have someone like Dan coach you through the whole process. What's it? Uh, he he uses he calls it the uh, 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 was it fear inoculation or stress inoculation. Without do, going through that process, all you have is intellectual knowledge. And to a field practitioner, that's garbage. I like to take away everybody's life preservers and make them swim in the deep end. There's a point in our coaching program where you don't get to talk about sales and procurement because those are lifelines for you. You can get very technical in a role play and try to get really creative in a problem solving. So you get to be a police crisis negotiator for a day. And those are the situations. And you have no idea about the technical side. It is 100% about managing emotions and just responding to the last thing that's said and moving towards your mission and purpose. 
and and it is very much it's like throwing like throwing somebody who doesn't know how to swim into a pool and then they learn how to swim you're there in case they start to drown but they've got to figure it out because there's no substitute for just learning about human aggression and human emotions and that a lot of the things we do naturally don't work well in those situations it's got to be a learned response and that's why i love the swimming analogy the natural response to being in water over your head is drowning swimming is a learned adaptive human performance activity and once you get it you've got it and then you can get really really good at it too but if you stick to the natural response with emotional people you'll drown but if you get a learned habit of addressing emotions and managing biases and inviting people to feel safe, then you can work with really emotional people. And by the way, that's where your strongest agreements come from. If you have a client that is desperate and instead of taking advantage of them, you do great discovery and find the best possible solution in terms of sales, guess who they're going to love forever, right? As long as those same people are involved in that deal, you have a strong agreement. You know, my, my next question is a little bit of a difficult one. You know, actually just thinking about it makes me realize how tough the situation might be, right? Timing, and I'm sure you hear this very often, timing is a critical factor in negotiation. And sometimes when you're the seller, you have to transact within a specific amount of time. Call it the fiscal year, getting things on the docket, getting transactions on the docket within a specific time frame. And so what happens is, is that even, if, even, even though you might practice on how to control emotion, how to manage emotion, as a salesperson, you'd want to crunch and transact and get deals done before a specific end of year, end of quarter, end of month, end of week. And so what happens for you to do that sometimes is your accelerated path to close before that timeline. just because of a timeline people use timeline differently i mean i've seen people use timeline i catch myself doing it and i've seen it in like uh, even in flea markets right so what people say is you know what when you go to flea market go at the last hour when they're ready to pack and people are leaving and maybe they haven't done enough sales or this is the last minute sale and you can get a good discount when you're haggling with someone in the market (laughs) right Sure, you can do that. It'll be fun. Or you look in the enterprise sales where you have to work with an engineer and then you've got to navigate to the engineering director. Then you got to go to the IT department, get to their, 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 uh, uh, their procurement. And then very, very, very soon you have to go navigate through the, uh, uh, the, the attorneys or the, the, the internal counsel, right? So at each stage, your deal can die and you know there's a timeline. So what do you do? you have to negotiate that timeline. So instead of negotiating and compromising on price, you need to upfront negotiate the journey map. What has to happen next? All the way to when they deploy your solution. And you have to get everyone on board because when you're negotiating with uh, the HR, uh, the, uh, the procurement, you can, you can say, well, I spoke to your engineers. I know you guys need to do X, Y, Z by this time. I know you probably have to look at our solution and, and uh, we have to talk about certain terms. 
I'm on your time frame, but I want, well, I want to recognize, I want to see whether this time frame that your engineer said makes sense to you. You are now using their own timeline against them. That makes sense? So if anyone is holding any part of that uh, a journey map, you want everyone to know it's not you. So this is all upfront negotiation. Every, you negotiate the next step so you don't have to negotiate the next step. So if you are, if you are the IT department and uh, I may say, look, I'm on your time frame. take as much time as you want, Rishan. I, I know that the uh, engineer want this there. We're gonna move as fast as we can. Uh, as soon as you respond, we need X, Y, Z amount of time to respond. And I don't know what the next phase is uh, if we have to talk to your legal department. So you take all the time you need. But you know now that if you, if you stall and create a, uh, a time pressure down, down, down the road later, that's on you, not me. And I'm gonna enlarge the decision-making circle. So when I'm communicating with you, everybody gets get a copy of it. The engineer I talk to that wants my solution gets a copy that I'm talking to the IT and that I'm letting you guys take as much time as you want. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna compress the time like other people do because when I do that, it creates a tension or a threat. I want you to feel like you can have all the time you want. You have the autonomy and the control to make it as long, as quick as you want. But I need to, I, I need to understand the whole buying side, the whole buying process from you guys. And I'll piece it together as a puzzle. There's a lot there. And you know, sometimes what happens is, is leaders end up putting those type of timelines on the people that are actually selling and doing the negotiation. And so I'd love to get your opinion on what is the role of a leader in a negotiation like that? So one of the most critical things that negotiators do is we manage bias. We recognize it for what it is. We examine it to see if it's a bias or it can be helpful. And if it's a bias that's not helpful, then we have to learn to quiet the bias. And there, in this example that you give, if there's a leader that's pressuring sales professionals because of a, of a timeline, then they should recognize that timelines are art, always artificial, right? Very, very rarely is something actually that urgent. And that we use quarterly benchmarking to organize the year. But the mission and purpose is not to meet our benchmarks. The mission and purpose is what? To, to grow the company through better selling, I would suppose, something like that. So if I had somebody that was about to close a major deal and could get really great terms to create a strong agreement, and the only thing holding them back is they feel a need to discount because of a timeline that I and the company have imposed, then I hope that's negotiable. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you doing this, as always. One last question before you leave. Where can people find you? Well, uh, Alan is probably in, a, in his, his lair or he's on LinkedIn, probably on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm there as well. It's free and it can't hurt. And we have a, a pretty special community of people that are just really interested in becoming more habitual and better negotiators. It's called the Negotiation Tribe. And we meet at least monthly at a free Q&A Kind of like this, actually. Excellent questions, Rashawn. 
<laughs> and we bring in a guest and we just kind of hash out some aspect of negotiation so everybody can get their input. We have uh, some workshops that go on there as well. And a lot of just daily interaction, building up everybody's habits and skills. So LinkedIn, look for Alan Zhang, T-S-A-N-G, or Dan Oblinger. I'm sure you'll drop it in the show notes. <laughs> I definitely will. Thank you very much. And one last thing, be nice to each other. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's like dad telling us to be nice. <laughs>